Okay. Um, so, uh, joys of remote conferences. It's probably a time zone issue. Um, I tried to make sure that I communicated that well, but there's all <laughs> time zones are the things that always mess uh, me up and some of this other stuff up. So, I'm guessing that he'll probably show up in an hour or so, and um, you know maybe we'll do an extra session or something. But um, anyway, and yeah, the other alternates aren't in the uh, participants list, which means that I can't promote them and have them give their. So uh, we're going to do this on the fly. This is a talk that I gave last year, um, but this is a topic that I love to talk about. So um, we're just going to go ahead and uh, start. And uh, if you have any questions, go ahead and talk in the chat. Um, I can see the chat. I can re respond to whatever. And uh, yeah, and Stan, no worries. I'm not super stressed. I knew I had a couple of these in the bag if I had to pull them out. So um, we'll make it work. Um, Anyway, so this is an introduction to freelancing. I'm sorry, I don't have any JavaScript talks in my bag of tricks, so um, I, I plan on doing a few of those this year or next year, but I just haven't had a chance. So uh, this is a pretty popular talk, um, and a lot of people seem to really get into it. Uh, do we have any people out there who are freelance right now? Yeah, it looks like we have a few. All right. So uh, you guys can keep me honest here, right? Uh, just to give a brief introduction, I've been freelance for the last four and a half years, and I actually have a podcast about freelancing. If you go to freelancershow.com, uh, you can spell that with two S's or with one. They both work, and uh, you know you kind of get the idea there. Um, and so, yeah, it looks like we've also got a few that uh, run a consultancy. And I actually... At this point, just to give you an idea, I've, I've kind of worked on my own often for the last four and a half years, but there have been a few times, including right now, where I've actually um, had a subcontractor or two or three working on projects with me. Um, and so that'll give you an idea. Um, Federico, who's in the attendee list, is one of the people that I've worked with for a long time. So um, he can also uh, straighten out any of the, the, uh, the lies I tell you, I guess. <laughs> about how I work. But anyway, um, so let's talk for a minute. We're going to, we're just going to talk about people are freelance. And we're also going to talk a bit about, um, you know, how to handle specific things as you're getting started. And then um, I'll just answer some common questions that people have about freelancing. And really what it, uh, what it comes down to is those questions um, will give you some idea of how you want to go about getting started. Um, and, and so this is kind of one-on-one, -on -one, but it is going to give you, I think, enough information for you to uh, work well as you get going. So freelancing is just paradise, right? Everybody thinks, oh, those guys, they go freelance, and then they get some gig that pays them $20,000 an hour. And so they work four or five hours a year, and that's pretty much it. Um, when I show people this picture, I also usually tell them that... Uh, I work really hard, and this is what I do the other 51 weeks out of the year. But uh, that's not necessarily the case. You know, as you can imagine, you're running your own business and you're doing a lot of work. And so there are a lot of things that go into freelancing. One of the reasons for freelancing is freedom. And so they have this idea that you get to set your own hours and you get to, you, you have more time for stuff and things like that. And that's true to a certain extent. Um, I found that in a lot of cases, I'm free to like go take off and go be at my kid's school if they have some activity going on. I can work around other events. So if there's some major family thing that happens, you know, somebody dies, somebody has a baby, um, I need to go to a conference, all that stuff. I don't have to report to my boss. I don't have to go to the guy and say, hey, look, I really need to be at this thing. Can you let me have the time off and hope that they say, oh, yeah, or no way, or, you know, whatever. I, I don't have to check in with anybody. I just make sure that it works for my wife, works for my kids, and then I just, I go do it. So um, my wedding anniversary is in about three or four weeks. And so, you know, I'm working things out that way. We're also going to the Parade of Homes, which is a, a place where we go down and walk through million dollar homes in St. George, Utah. 
And, uh, you know, so I'm taking next Friday off. And we're going down to do that with my father-in-law and his fiance and my sister-in-law and her husband. So there are all kinds of things. Federico says he took his, took his wife's birthday off today. And, uh, you know, now I'm going to apologize to her for stealing her this evening. But uh, anyway, so, you know, you have the freedom to do those kinds of things, but it's not necessarily the kind of freedom that you're, you're thinking. I don't have as much free time as people tend to think I do, but there is that flexibility, and that's one of the reasons I really like it. And what comes along with that is control. So I, I basically have control over my environment and everything else. Uh, here are some of the things I have control over. One is my schedule. Um, this is an old shot of my calendar from last year. But you can kind of get an idea of when I was doing specific things. And so that, that'll give you an idea. So, you know, I had a conference call or I had, I met somebody for lunch, um, that Monday. This week, actually, I believe was the week of Mountain West Ruby Conference. So I just worked all this stuff around the conference and stuff too. But anyway, so the only things on my schedule that are fixed are the things that I had as appointments. I also get to pick my own tax write-off, I mean equipment. And so, you know, that's nice. I don't have to depend on some corporate budget to approve uh, me getting whatever it is that I want. Though usually I would get approval on a massive laptop and then they would gripe about the $10 tech book I wanted to get that would show me how to do my job. Uh, but whatever the case is, you know, I have that flexibility. I can get what I need to do my job. And the only constraints I have are, is the business doing well enough to afford it? And do I really want to buy it? And in some cases, can I talk my wife into it? The other thing that I really like as far as control and freedom goes is that I can work anywhere. I don't have any clients that need me in their office. Uh, I've done that in the past. I don't do that anymore. If they want me there, sometimes I'll work things out so that I show up like every other week or something for a couple of hours. But I just... I, I enjoy working from home, and there are just a lot of things that, uh, a lot of benefits that go with that. And so, you know, that's that's just pretty much that. I can work from anywhere, and it's a, it's a big payoff. So let's talk about the money. You know, people, again, they, they have this idea that you go out, you get a, a contracting gig, and they pay you $500 an hour or something. And I, I definitely know people who get that to do tech stuff, but... It's, it really depends on a lot of things. And you also have to keep in mind that with the money aspect, there are a lot of things that your company is paying for or helping you with that you don't recognize. And uh, so I'm going to talk about some of those things, but definitely I found that if you can become in demand, then the money factor is a thing that can definitely pay off. And so, you know, my current billable rate is rather high, and it's because people um, recognize me as an industry expert and so then I can go out and I can build those things. And the podcasts have helped a lot with that. But um, in a lot of cases, there are things that you have to keep in mind. One of the things that I hate the most is taxes. Uh, every year I get dinged for thousands of dollars uh, to pay for things that I, I don't even, I can't even name all the things the government spends money on. And most of the things are dumb anyway. And so it's, it's really frustrating to have to give up money to the government so that they can pay for things that uh, only a small number of which I use, like the roads and things like that. So, you know, the, there is public infrastructure that are definitely paid for. And, you know, but, but the rest of it, it really just feels like a, a ripoff. It's not, a, it's not an expense that I would willingly pay because the government just doesn't take care of things really well, um, in my opinion anyway. But you have to pay taxes, and you have to keep in mind that if you're an employee in the United States, and I realize that there are people all over the world, but in the United States, uh, there's self-employment tax, and what that boils down to is that um, so there are government taxes that they force employers to pay half of when you're not self-employed. And so when you're self-employed, uh, your liability on that basically doubles. So you're paying about 6% in the U.S. if you're an employee, and you're paying all 15% if you're a self-employed person in the U.S. So you can just write that off right there because it's going to go away, and you're going to have to pay it. Um, I had to fit one of these in the uh, presentation somewhere. 
you know, with the people in suits and stuff. Um, this is my benefit slide. Um, a lot of employers pay for health benefits and things like that. And a lot of times they can work things out at, at a group rate. Um, the healthcare situation is U.S., so it's not as critical to be in a company in order to get health coverage. But a lot of times they can get a better deal and they'll just cover it. So that's not something you have to pay. And um, finally, this I actually did have animations on, but um, I had to upload the PDF because it didn't like the keynote file. So I'm just going to walk through it. So let's say that you, as a corporate employee, make $6,000 a month. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to walk you through some of the considerations you need to make. And if you're international, uh, some of these numbers are definitely going to be different, okay? So $6,000 a month, and then let's assume that you're going to lose 15.3% to self-employment tax because you're in the United States. Uh, that means that in order to maintain your um, standard of living, you're going to have to make $7,083. And then if you take that and you add in health coverage, and my health uh, coverage premium actually went up, so I would actually add a little bit more than $900 every month to what I need to bring in. But let's just say $900, that brings it to $7,900 and change. Um, and then let's say that, um, I don't remember what that 0.2 was, but anyway, um, that's going to bug me. Anyway, um, so let's, let's just say that, uh, you know, there was some margin. I think it was, Anyway, I'm just going to skip it because I don't remember what it, what it stands for. I think the idea was that you're going to spend some time in your business, working on your business, and you don't get paid for that. Um, and then you want four weeks or yeah, four weeks off vacation. So you got to factor that in. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's what it was. It was other taxes. Thank you, Ryan. So the the point two is your tax rate. Um, so let's say 20% tax rate, income tax, um, which is generous for some and not so generous for others, depending on how much you bring in. Um, but yeah, that's what it was. It was income tax. And then, um, I don't have my notes in front of me. So then you have things like vacation. So you want to take four weeks off every year. So you've got to factor that in. And, uh, what that boils down to, since we've been calculating this against, uh, weeks and years and stuff like that. Um, if there are four weeks in a month, then you need to make $2,700 a week. And what that boils down to is about $90 an hour. Now, if you have any other overhead, like equipment or uh, internet or electricity or an office or anything like that, then obviously you're going to have to make more. And if you're accustomed to living that more than a $6,000 a month lifestyle, then you're going to have to figure that out as well. But I was at five or $6,000 a month when I went freelance, and so that's basically where I started out. Um, of course, I didn't know better at the time, so, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, so let's get into the common questions. Um, the, the one I get most often is, when I tell people that they ought to consider going freelance is, isn't that risky? Isn't that scary? What if you don't find clients? What are you going to do? Um, and then all of the people out there who uh, think that freelancing is a great idea, they always seem like this. Well, if you have three clients and one of them quits on you, you're better off than if you have one client, a.k.a. an employer, who lets you go. Now, this is somewhat true, but I really don't buy it because if you're an experienced developer, um, and, and I can tell stories about this. I know plenty of people. I've done this myself. Um, in fact, one instance, I got laid off. It was my wedding anniversary, incidentally. I got laid off. I went home. Uh, put my resume up on job boards. I got a phone call before lunch. I went out to the job interview. They interviewed me. They called me on my way back home and said, when can you start? And I said, tomorrow, because I got laid off this morning and I went into work the next day. So if you have experience, if you have the skill set that people need, especially in this current economy as a senior programmer, you're not going to have any problems finding another job. So the risk in freelancing is that you're going to have to fall back to that full-time job. In other words, you're not doing the marketing right so that you have enough clients to pay all the bills and you're going to have to go find that employer who will pick you up and pay the bills, you know, pay you and then you can pay the bills. So I, I don't buy into this argument. I think it's a little, um, it's a little bit 
more relevant to newer people who, you know, maybe there aren't as many junior jobs out there. And I've talked to a few junior people who have had trouble finding jobs. And so that may be the case for them, but it's not the case for um, anybody with a few years of experience in programming. So, and that, those are usually the people who can go out and command enough on a, uh, on a freelance rate to actually pay all the bills and take care of everything. So um, anyway, I'm just saying that this argument at this point in this market doesn't hold a lot of water. So the, the risk is, is that you're going to have to give up some of your freedom and go beg somebody to pay you in a full-time position. So the other thing I'm going to talk through real quick is how to make sure that you don't have to fall back to that job. Because if you do your marketing right, if you know who your customers are and you can find them and you can find work and you can do it consistently, then there's no risk, right? I mean, if you can guarantee that you have a steady stream of people who are going to give you money, then the risk is gone. So, so what I tell people is that they need to find that target market. They need to find that target customer. In other words, you need to find a niche that you can serve, uh, that you can provide value to, and then basically own that list. So what, what I generally tell people is, you know, pick a vertical. So, you know, pick doctors or dentists or plumbers or whoever, uh, people who have money and will pay you to do something that's worth it to them. You can also specialize on different technologies. So for example, Eric Davis, who's one of the co uh, common guys on um, Freelancer Show, he's one of the regular uh, hosts. He, for a long time, worked in Redmine, which is an open source Ruby on Rails project management system. And he kind of became the guy to go to for Redmine stuff. And so you don't have to specialize on an industry. You can also specialize on a particular piece of software. Um, I've gotten plenty of work off of videos showing how to build a Twitter clone in Ruby on Rails, um, which is mainly where I work is Ruby on Rails and AngularJS. Um, but anyway, so you kind of get known in that niche or known for that thing, and then it's much easier to find customers because they're actually looking for you. Um, an example that John Sonmez always uses is let's say that your garbage disposal in your sink, which is the thing that grinds up the food when it goes down the drain so that it'll go through the pipes. Um, for, for those who, you know, don't have one or, you know, I'm using a term that, you know, English speakers will understand, but maybe other folks won't. Anyway, if that, if that gets clogged up or doesn't work and you go to the phone book and you open up, you turn to plumbing and you see ABC plumbing, um, uh, the plumber guy, and you see the garbage disposal repair guy, which guy are you going to call? And what it basically boils down to is uh, the garbage disposal repair guy can probably fix your other plumbing issues, but you're going to call him because he knows what to do to fix your exact problem. And so that's the power of finding that niche, niching down, and really nailing things. So once you know who that target market is, then what you need to do is you need to build a platform. And I've, I put this uh, book cover in. It's a terrific book by Michael Hyatt. And uh, basically, he explains how to build a platform. Most of it's social media and blogging. Um, he does talk about podcasting a little bit. But the guidelines in here and get really good at putting content out that your target market will want to consume, then you can start to become noticed in that area. And you can start solving their problems and getting money for it. Once you start building a platform, you want to get on your email list. And the email list is really a great place to do that marketing. It's also a good place to uh, convert these people who don't know who you are into people who do know who you are. So you start asking them questions in your email. And most email systems send it out with your email at the top. So what that boils down to is when they hit the reply button, it comes back to you. So you can ask them, you know, what's your biggest pain? Or... Have you ever experienced this thing? Or have you ever wondered what it would be like to have a, a shopping cart that didn't crash all the time? Or have you ever wondered you know, what it would take to get this added to your project management system? Or whatever your specialty is, you, know, it's, you start talking to them. You can also just say, hey, email me back and tell me your name, your, you know, what city you're from, and you know, three things about yourself that I should know. And so then you can start to find out who these people are, you know, and from there you can work up to the point where you actually know who these people are. You can kind of build an idea around who the rest of the people are that you're talking to. And then you can really come up with a terrific solution to them and start serving their needs in a more focused way.
And then um, finally, what I do is, so, so let me walk you through my, my thing. This is an RSS uh, icon. Um, I do the podcasts. Um, I also did a blog for a while. Um, I did some screencasts. I did all kinds of stuff. And uh, so once I got that going, then I put a form like this up on my website. Uh, this one's targeting people who are in the medical industry. And basically the idea is uh, PHI is personal health information, and there are laws about how you have to protect it. And so I was putting together a mailing list that would email them every day for six days saying, here's how you protect your personal health information. Um, and then I send them an email, and I'm like, please tell me a little bit about your medical practice. Please tell me a little bit about who you are and what you do and what you care about and what your pains are and stuff like that. And then I offer a solution to what they're complaining about. And that's, that's more or less how I've operated um, going into particular industries for a while. And I'm working on specializing on particular things now. And I may talk about that at the end if, if anyone has questions about that. Um, I'm going to pause here real quick. I've been talking for about a half hour, and I've been talking fast. So if you have questions about um, going freelance or about this particular, um, this particular process, uh, let me know. Uh, otherwise, I'll just move on to the next question I have in the list. So Floyd's asking any more info on finding a need, a niche or a niche. I, I say niche. Um, yeah, basically you have to find a niche that you. How do I say this? You you want to find people that you enjoy working with. Um, uh, Michael Port, book yourself solid. He says to put up a velvet rope, and you only let people in that you want to work with. Um, when you're getting started, a lot of times that's kind of hard, so you're probably going to pick up a few clients and you're going to find out which ones you like and which ones you don't. That's pretty normal. It's not a terrible way to go um, because ultimately after three or four, you're going to be like, you know what, I really like people like this and I really don't like people like that. And you'll find out uh, personalities as much as which niches or types of jobs you enjoy taking. And so then you can narrow it down. Um, but yeah, so for example, my dad's a dentist. Um, I've mentioned that on a few shows because I always use the example of dentists or plumbers, and I don't know why plumbers, uh, in the shows talking about, hey, well, what about this for dentists? And um, it seems to work out pretty well. Um, Stan's asking, are you finding a lot of repeat business? So I'm just, just starting to break into the niche of Spree Commerce applications. Uh, Spree is an open source shopping cart for Ruby on Rails. And it's it's a lot it's a lot easier to find people when they're searching for spree and um, I haven't quite got the landing page up for that yet but I'm getting referrals because one person uses spree and then they tell their friends that they're using spree and then blah 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 you can kind of see how that goes too um, so it's a little bit early with that um, and uh, before before spree I would kind of niche down but uh, really it was the videos on building social networks that got me a lot of work in the past. And so I would get repeat business off of that because people would keep finding it and it would be along the lines of what they're looking for. And uh, he also asked, do you find that you have to keep working to find new customers? You always have to keep working to find new customers. The, the trick with finding the niche is that eventually you get to the point where um, people are referring other people to you. Um, you have a lot of uh, organic traffic from Google and things because uh, people keep clicking on your links and then buying from you and talking about you online. And so eventually you get to the point where you don't have to look as much. But you still have to keep everything up to date and do all the work to keep your marketing on point so that people, so that you're basically targeting what, targeting what people are looking for. All right. Uh, no more questions, looks like. So I'm just going to move into what to charge for. Um, <clears throat> this is commonly not the problem I see from people. Um, you don't just go in and charge a million dollars an hour. Um, so uh, a lot of people, though, they get in and what they do is they undercharge. So they're like, oh, well, I make about, let's just say $60,000 a year. So that comes down to about $5,000 a month. You know, so you do the math, just dividing that up between 30 days, 
and you get somewhere in the neighborhood of about what my calculator says, uh, 5,000 divided by 30. So that's $166 uh, a day um, minus weekends. In fact, let's just do that differently. Let's say it's 5,000 uh, divided by uh, four weeks divided by 40 hours. That comes out to about $30 an hour. So, you know, 30 bucks an hour is not going to get you, it's not, you'll eat, but you won't do anything else. So, um, but that's in the U.S. So it depends on where you are. It depends on what you're looking for. Um, so when I, when I went freelance, I got laid off. Um, I went out and I uh, talked to a bunch of folks. I found out that there was a company hiring. It turned out they were looking for a freelancer. And so I bid them at 65 bucks an hour because I was like, Ooh, I'm going to make a lot of money. And yeah, it, between that and my severance, I was able to get by. And um, anyway, it was, it, it just didn't work out. And my friends all told me pretty much uh, right away that I needed to be charging more than that. And so I was like, what? And then um, they helped me do this math and they said, you should be charging at least $100 an hour. So you can kind of see where we're going with this. Um, but if you're in $60 an hour land and you live in the U.S. anyway, it's like, oh, dude, that sucks. So, um, you know, it really depends on uh, where you're at and what kind of work you can find and who's going to pay you. And I know that um, hiring people internationally, it kind of varies on that because um, I know that people aren't necessarily willing to pay overseas rates for foreign people um, and stuff like that. But I also know that like standards of living are different in different countries and things like that. So, you know, you figure out what works out for you, um, find an arrangement that makes you happy, and then maybe you'll have a few days like this where you're making enough to cover all the bills, you can relax, and you can take a nice vacation once a year. And uh, most of the audiences that I've given this to are U.S.-centric, and so when I say 60 bucks an hour is low, um, I, I don't make any caveats for people overseas because I, I honestly don't know what the conditions there are. I know that the wages are usually um, commensurate with the, the cost of living, and so, you know, $60 may be a lot or it may be a little, and it just, it just depends, you know, if you're, if you're in some expensive city in Europe versus if you're in um, India or Singapore, you know, which is a poor country and a rich country comparatively or whatever. So anyway, um, that, that should hopefully give you some ideas on how you can figure out what to charge. But ultimately, if you're not making enough, you'll figure it out. So. Anyway, uh, any questions on on that, on what to charge? Uh, I'm much better at answering these questions for people who are in the U.S. than people outside the U.S. Um, I do try and pay people outside the U.S. when I hire them, you know, along the same lines as everybody else on the team because they're doing the same work. But um, I know that that's not always the case. And I don't know that that's necessarily fair or not. So. So I, I'm, I got a question, how do you track your hours? Um, I can share my screen in a second, but basically um, I'm, I'm not going to bother with it here. Um, yeah, Ryan, best answer to what to charge is more, almost always. Um, eventually you'll get to the point where people won't pay you, and so, or they won't hire you, so charge a little less than that, whatever that is. Um, I use a system called Harvest to track my hours. They have a little widget that installs on my Mac. And so it's just up in the toolbar, and then I can uh, start and stop the timer and, you know, things like that. So um, that's, that's basically how I track hours, though. At this point, um, so I talked about hourly rate, but at this point I've been trying to find contracts that are just going to pay me a fixed rate. And that way I don't have to go around and, um, you know, jump up and down and, and play all the games about, okay, I did, I did six hours on this, you know, well, it should have taken you four, well... It took me six, so you have to pay it. Well, I don't, I don't think I should have to pay it. You know, I don't, I don't have to play any of those games um, when it's an, a value-based uh, price. Um, I just deliver, and if I, if I get um, messed over on the hourly rate, uh, you know, the effective hourly rate, then 
you know, that's my fault and I know to charge more next time. But so far I haven't had an issue with that. Um, Amir asks, have you ever had to had an issue having to chase the bill? And how do you deal with it? I'm going to get to that here in a minute. Um, but yeah, this shouldn't have taken you long and I am not paying. Um, I'll talk about that when we get to that one. So anyway, how do you get anything done? If you know me, I have four kids. Um, so I just put one of these in my office. I'm just kidding. Um, so I've done a couple of different things. Uh, the door locks on my office, which is probably the biggest thing. Uh, sometimes they are kind of loud. My office is right next to my son's bedroom. So, you know, if they're playing in there, sometimes it gets kind of noisy, but then I can just turn the music or podcast or whatever I'm listening to up. Uh, the other thing is, is I have an aluminum stop sign. Uh, I can go grab it if you'd like. In fact, I should. I'll be right back. So I'll put this up on my door, and my kids know if they come in with this up, they better be dying. Um, but, uh, you know, other than that, generally my wife's pretty good about keeping the kids out of my hair when I need to get work done. And then the other thing is is that I really try and spend time with the kids so that they're not in here all the time wishing that they could get my attention. So there's a lot of that, and there's also a lot of this. Uh, you just have to learn to say no. Um, I mean, people are going to come to you all the time and say, hey, I really, you know, you do this for me. Can you do that for me? And ultimately, you know, you have to take care of your your family and, you know, the people around you. And then the other thing is, is you have to take care of your clients. So, you you know, you wind up saying no a lot. I wind up saying no a lot. Uh, Stan asks, do you find yourself working more than 40 hours a week, almost every week? But it's stuff that I enjoy doing, and if I do need to take the time off, I can. So there, there's a trade-off there, but I really enjoy what I do, and so it doesn't feel like I'm slaving away for the man all day, and I'm not you know, sitting around wishing I was somewhere else. And if there is something going on, I just go downstairs and be involved. So... There are a lot of pluses to that. But yeah, I usually work more than 40 hours a week. All right, so the next question. What if I'm not a good salesman? I, I went to lunch with my daughter, I think. Um, I try and do something with my kids every so often. Uh, one of the things that they like to do is go to McDonald's. I haven't taken them to McDonald's enough. But anyway, um, so I took my daughter to McDonald's. This was quite a while ago, and I ran into one of my old neighbors, and he's working for a consulting company in Salt Lake City, and um, we started talking, and he's talking about all the stuff he's doing for the different clients that they have, and I looked at him, I said, dude, I said, you should just go freelance, and we had worked at another consulting company together before then, um, but anyway, he's like, yeah, I've thought about that, but I can't sell, and the the issue that he had was when he about sales, he thought about messing somebody over, you know. Well, I, I have to pull something over on them in order to get them to buy. And I looked at him and I said, first off, do you really think that that's what your employer's doing? And he looked at me and said, no, I wouldn't work for him if I felt that way. Okay, well, the, the other thing is, is how often are you putting together proposals and trying to convince them to do things and working with them to adopt certain uh, practices or certain technologies and things like that. He's like, oh, all the time. I said, then you're selling. I mean, you're the only thing you're not doing is putting a number on it. You're letting your employer do that. And if you honestly believe that what you are giving away or selling is worth what they're going to give you back, then then you're a good salesperson. And you're not doing anything wrong. You're not being sleazy. You're not uh, trying to pull something over on somebody or sell them a, a, a car that doesn't work. What you're doing is you are making an offer of value for value, and if they if they value what you can give at the same level that uh, you value the money that they'll give you, then then you you know you can make it work. Um, this is a terrific book that explains all this way better than I can. Uh, it's to sell as human by Daniel Pink, and 
honestly, I can't recommend it highly enough. I honestly also think that every person who is an employee or a freelancer should read this book because it goes into much more than selling services or products for money. It's about um, trading value and offering something to somebody else and getting something in return. So just go check it out. All right. <laughs> yes, we did a book club on Freelancer Show on that book. And uh, um, it, I'll find a link for it after the conference, and I'll, I'll put it into the chat or into the forum, along with links to those other books that I recommended. Uh, so the next question, what if I don't get paid? Well, there are two things that I tell people about getting paid. The first one is, is that your marketing process needs to sift out the people that aren't going to pay you. Now, you can't always tell, and I've had clients not pay me, and I'll tell you a couple of stories because I, well, I don't know if we have time. But basically, what it comes down to is, you know, you've got to weed out those people. So if it doesn't look like they're going to pay you, if you have that gut feeling that says this is a bad deal, trust your gut, tell them no. You don't have to explain why. They'll go find somebody else that's happy to take their money and take the risk on them. Uh, and you're not doing anything wrong. I mean, if you really re really need the money and you don't have any other prospect of getting paid, I don't know, maybe you take the chance. That's up to you. Uh, I still don't recommend it. I recommend that you spend your time marketing to find somebody who will pay you. Um, but also, you wind up uh, spending a lot of, you'll spend a lot of time doing work that doesn't pay off for you in any way. Because they'll walk away with your code and you, you, know, you won't have anything to show for it, not even another client. So you're better off spending the marketing time if they're not going to pay you. Um, I've had a few people not pay me. Um, and just on a quick uh, note, not pay me means not pay me on time. Uh, because if they don't pay me within 15 to 30 days, um, getting paid eventually is, is better than nothing. But the, I still have to fight all the battles of not having money until that money comes in. So I had one client that I did a bunch of work for. I actually had subcontractors on that client. Um, I got warned that he wasn't good, good about paying. I took it anyway. And uh, wouldn't you know it, he didn't pay me. And so um, I fought him and fought him and fought him, uh, bugged him, bugged him, bugged him. And finally, I sent him an email and said, I'm not going to bother you about this anymore. I'm going to have my attorney bother you about it. And I got paid the next day. Um, because he knew he had a contract and he didn't have any way out. But in, in some cases, you can't do that. I had another client that was out in Dubai, which is in the United Arab Emirates. Um, obviously, I can't take that guy to court. So the way that I structured the deal, I withheld his code until he paid me, and he never paid me. So you can guess what happened. He didn't get his code. Um, in a lot of cases, though, especially with the value-based value, value -based marketing and the fixed bids, I just get paid up front and that solves the problem. But you have to have a level of, of uh, trust with that. No, I didn't open sources code. Um, the other thing is, yeah, get some money up front. Um, the, the thing with deposits or retainers is that you have something to fall back on, right? So if you collect a deposit and then you're gonna bill them for hours every week or two weeks, you know, with whatever payment schedule, you just set up your payment schedule so that the retainer would cover most of the last billed invoice. And then if they don't pay you that on time, then you start, you know, talking like, okay, well, um, I'm just going to take the retainer, apply it to the invoice and leave. And if you, if you play that game right and you know, you, you be respectful, you be nice about it. You don't threaten them. Like I'm just going to leave and I'm going to leave you in a lurch, but you know, if, if they value your work, then they're going to get you paid. So you stay. And so deliver a lot of value, make it so that they're happy to have you around. Uh, if you have that deposit, that's your last paycheck essentially if you have to leave on terms where they haven't paid you. And then, and then that's what you do. So then you say, look, you're five days late. Um, I'm gonna stop work because this isn't covered by the retainer of the deposit. And then you, know, you just work it that way. And a lot of times, yeah, you, you'll sometimes wind up stopping work for a day, but for the most part, that's the way it works. So, um, I know there were a few other questions on this. Let's see. So, 
So yeah, have you ever had an issue with having to chase the bill? Yes. What did you do to deal with it? Well, if they're in the U.S., I tell them I'm calling my attorney. And if they're outside the U.S., then I usually have some other collateral or I just make them pay me up front. Um, but yeah, I've had that issue before. And if they're outside the country, then a lot of times there's really not a whole lot you can do. Um, I know that there are some international agreements that, you know, but I don't know what they are. I, I really don't have any expertise in that area, and they're probably not worth pursuing if they exist. So um, for the most part, that's the way it works. The other thing is, is all of my contracts, or my contract basically says um, that they they have to litigate here, which means that I can take them to court here, and they have to come here to fight it. So if they haven't paid me, I take my contract in, I file all the paperwork to sue them, and then I do that. I've never had to do that yet. Usually just having the attorney send them an email is enough. Um, and even then, most of the time, threatening to have the attorney send them an email is enough, and then I don't even have to pay the attorney. So any other questions about getting paid or making sure you get paid? I'm really, really digging um, the, the fixed bid uh, value-based model at this point. How did you find a good lawyer for freelancers? Actually, I lucked out on that. Um, there is a meetup every month called LaunchUp here in Utah, and what they do is they have startups that present about what they're working on and things like that. And before the meetup, for the first half hour for a while, or for the half hour before, they would have technologists, attorneys, and accountants come in and basically offer office hours. And so I found I found my attorney there who works with startups, and um, they'd also worked with a number of freelancers, and they had they had boilerplate templates for a lot of the contracts that I needed, and so I sent them the contract that I had been using and had them verify that it was, you know, legit and worked and blah 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 and covered everything that I wanted to cover, and then for my subcontractor agreement, if if the contractor's in the U.S., then I make them sign a subcontractor agreement that basically says that they won't steal my clients and that um, if they do really crappy work that that I can negotiate with them as far as how much I pay them. But I've never done that to a contractor. I'd rather just pay them off and let them go. But that at least then if they do something terrible to the client code and it gets deployed to production then I can I can put some of the liability on them. Um, and yeah, so that's, that's how it worked. Um, I would talk to other freelancers and see who you can line up. So the other, one of the other questions is, is do I need to incorporate? Um, speaking of liability, what kind of insurance do you have? I don't have any. I don't carry, I don't carry uh, professional insurance. And uh, in my contract, it limits the liability to whatever they paid me. So worst case scenario, I have to issue a full refund. Um, do I need a business entity? My answer is yes. Um, there are a couple of things that, that basically this does for you. Uh, mine is an LLC, which is a limited liability company. It limits the liability. In other words, it limits uh, what people can take away from me if they sue me because the contract is with company. And so if they sue the company, then they can take the company's assets, but not mine. Um, there are things you can do to mess that up. So talk to an attorney to get uh, advice as to how to handle that. Um, my dad actually operates as a DBA, but he's a dentist and he carries malpractice insurance uh, along with professional insurance. So um, he's covered if somebody uh, falls and cracks their head open in his office, and he's covered for malpractice. And so he doesn't, you know, he doesn't need the business entity as, you know, per se, because unless he does something personally to somebody, it's it's a non-issue. But in our industry, in software, um, yeah. It, and so if you're doing a big contract with a big company, blah 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 blah, you probably want to cover insurance anyway. And the reason is, is because they can outlawyer you, and so it'll cost you a whole lot more to defend yourself than just whatever it is that they can sue you for. But I've never carried it, and it hasn't been an issue yet, so knock on wood. Uh, I might be tempting fate. I don't know. Um, but, yeah, so it limits liability. Um, I think this is cut off. Is it cut off for you guys at the bottom? Uh, new laptop, got the government discount is what it says. And uh, so the idea is is that you have a government or you have a business entity that you work through, and... Um, talk to an accountant, but um, I I have a separate a, a separate bank account for my business than I do for my personal stuff, 
And so it's really easy to track business expenses because I don't spend any personal money out of that account. And so everything that comes out of there is, is tax-free because in, at least in the US, uh, business expenses are not taxed. Um, they're, they're deductions out of your tax liability. And so what that essentially means is if I spend $2,000 on a laptop, I don't have to pay taxes, income tax or anything else on those $2,000. So um, it pays off. You can do this with a DBA. You can do this if you have a personal account and a business account and they're both in your name. But um, the, the finances and stuff, it, it's just easier to keep it separate. And then you can, uh, as Amir says, um, you, you can make it so that people can't take your house if you get sued. And the other thing is, is that, um, you know, because if you, if, you, if you mix your personal and your business finances, then they can come take away your personal assets because it's hard to tell them apart. And uh, the other thing is, is that, and, and I'm not an accountant, I'm not an attorney, so go talk to one. But yeah, there's a term for it. It's called piercing the corporate veil. And uh, it's just a, generally a bad idea. If you have a business entity, you can just go in with the business paperwork, get a bank account, keep it separate. And then all of your expenses go into, you know, go through that bank account. And then if you do have any business expenses, so for example, if I'm paying uh, for, for any equipment or anything else, then I don't have to pay taxes on that. And if I get audited, then they'll just, they're just going to go look at that one ledger and figure out if, you know, if I did buy anything on there that I shouldn't have or can't justify for business, but I don't have to play any games with, oh, well, that was personal, that was business, that was business, that was personal. And, uh, and so I can get away with a little bit more because I don't have to keep as close a track on it. All right, we're uh, running a little low on time. I might go a little bit long because I got started a little bit late, but I'm really almost done. Uh, do I need an accountant or attorney? Yes. Um, really, honestly. Um, our expertise is technology, and so understanding all the nuances with all of the laws and taxes and all the other stuff. I do my own bookkeeping. That's about it. And the only reason I do that is because I don't have, I don't have a lot of expenses. I don't go spend money out of my business every day. So... I can categorize everything pretty quickly and it's easier for me to do that than to pay somebody else to do it. And it only takes me like 20 minutes a week. So it's not a major thing. If it took me longer than that, then I'd probably hire somebody for that too. But yeah, um, having an accountant or an attorney means that if I need to go and uh, buy something for my business, if I need to, um, if I need to let somebody go either as an employee or as a, a contractor or anything like that, I can talk to them and I can make sure that I'm doing it in the right way so that it doesn't cause me any problems. So definitely hire one. Uh, recommended resources, uh, 30 Days to Become a Freelancer by Eric Davis. Uh, Get Clients Now, it's a terrific uh, program for getting clients, book your solid. It's another one that talks through the ins and outs of um, just building a clientele uh, platform. So these are all books. Uh, platform talks about you know building the blogging, podcasting, all that stuff, and and how to set up um, outlying bases basically in in social media and stuff, and then how to think about uh, the strategies with that. I can't recommend them highly enough. Uh, Next level freelance by Jevin Maltese is also excellent. So check those out. Um, and it's loading. I blame Comcast. Uh, other resources, uh, I know you can't see it. I can't really see it either. Um, I know some of the ones that are on there, though. The Freelancer Show. Um, uh, Freelance Switch, which has changed their website lately. There's also a freelancing category in Mashable. And something else. And I'll, I'll put these uh, slides up on the forum so you can see them and click the links and all that stuff. Um, but yeah, so that's everything. Um, so if you have questions, I'm going to go to Q&A mode and then you can ask. So you can either raise your hand or you can just ask in the chat. And I'm sorry it was a little bit unpolished uh, but I wasn't expecting to speak tonight, so.
All right. So uh, got a question from the Baba. Uh, typical size of a project you work on? Um, I've really worked on all sizes. It seems like the most typical project I get is usually somewhere between a month and three months work. Um, I've had a few contracts that have gone longer. Um, when I first got started, I landed a maintenance contract, which was 10 hours a week, and I worked that one for about a year and a half. Uh, and that was for Gannett Press. They own USA Today. I was working on another little side project that they have, but uh, I like to say I worked for a big company or did contracting for a big company. Um, the other one I built from scratch, a uh, Twitter clone for a client, and that one lasted about a year. And then I currently have a contract where I'm building another social network. I'm not going to talk too much about that because I don't know how much they want me to. But um, we're just into phase one now, and it sounds like they've got plenty of work to last me plenty of time and probably a few other people if I want to bring them in and get them to work on that. So um, anyway, so that's, you know, so there are longer contracts that I've worked. Um, I've also worked a couple of contracts where I was just a member of a development team, and um, I didn't like those much. Um, both, both contracts that I did that for lasted uh, between like five and eight months, and I just was not very... I, I didn't enjoy it, and yeah, two of those teams imploded. So anyway, um, so that's that's where it comes down to figuring out what kind of contracts you want. I won't do any more of those unless it seems to be a slam dunk. Um, Stan's asking, would, do you ever consider working for equity? Um, I have considered it but never done it. Uh, so the issue becomes if you're working for equity is, A, can I afford to not get paid or to get paid less to work on something with an eye toward a bigger payoff later. And the things that I'm usually considering under those circumstances are, um, A, do I think it's going to pay off, right? Is this company going to be worth something down the road that makes makes sense? Yeah, yeah, the BABA is cash plus equity combo. I've been offered both. Um, you know, so, so can I get paid less or get paid nothing right now and then get the payoff later? And uh, the other issue becomes, yeah, is it is it going to pay off later? Um, I've been offered those kinds of positions with one, two, two companies that seem like they might actually go somewhere. But the things that kept me from doing it were basically, A, in one case, I couldn't afford to go, you know, to take the pay cut. The other issue was that... Um, I would essentially be stepping back into an employee-like situation, and I couldn't give up a. Uh, I couldn't give up the plans, the things that I, I had been working on for me. In the meantime, um, I just couldn't bring myself to do it, and the the let the decrease in flexibility just wasn't worth it either. So um, usually that's what those decisions come down to. If I'm even thinking about equity, but I mean they pretty much have to look like a slam dunk for me to even think about it. Uh, Eric is saying, should we start by going through Odesk or Elance? The question, uh, or the, the, the issue that I, I see with Odesk and Elance is that most of the time, the way people shop for people on Odesk and Elance is that they go in, they type in what they want, so they'll type in, you know, JavaScript developer, and then they'll find a whole bunch of people you know, with all sorts of price ranges across all kinds of, of places that they are. And so then they'll go, okay, well, I got thousands, so now I'm going to filter it by a five-star review. So breaking in is tough. You have to have somebody that's going to give you a shot. And then the other issue is, is then they start comparing by the other thing that's really easy to compare people by, and that's their rate. And so if you get in there and you start... Um, looking for those those opportunities, what winds up happening is you have to lower your rate down to the same kind of level that, uh, you know, the people in India or Singapore, or not Singapore, I keep saying Singapore, I mean Indonesia um, or Pakistan, um, you know, sometimes Brazil I've seen, uh, you know, so, so their rates are all usually pretty comparable and you have to be down in that $10, $20, $30 an hour range in order for them to even consider you. And so if you're up in the $100 range, you're way above where everybody else is at, and they won't even look at you because they're they're thinking that your hours are, are as close to their hours, and they're not considering the fact that, 
you know, a lot of those folks don't speak English natively or well, um, and they don't also they also don't consider you know some of the other things that, that go into it like um, you know there's no way to uh, you can put in there that you have a certain number of years of experience but you have to get them to look at your profile first and so in a lot of cases you know they're not even going to see the relevant stuff um, or anything that would constitute a resume that would want them to want to make them hire you so the only the only ones that are going to hire you are the people who get in there and want to hire somebody local to them. And so then they'll filter it by where you're at and then they'll compare your rate to the other rates in the area, um, which, you know, is also kind of a crapshoot. So, you know, you wind up competing with people that you really can't or shouldn't be competing with. And you're, you're just not going to be able to get the kind of rate that you want or the kind of client that you want, because ultimately, um, they're going to be considering whether or not they should have hired the $10 an hour guy instead of you when they pay you. So, yeah, the, the, kinds, of, the kinds of clients you'd find on there, too, are also just generally the people who don't want to pay a lot of money. And those aren't the clients you want. So there are a lot of reasons not to go on there. Um, if you can't find work anywhere else, then you can definitely do that to build some experience. Just keep in mind that you're probably not going to be able to live on what you make if you're in the US going on Odesk or Elance. If you're foreign, I've seen that worked out pretty well, but you have to be in one of those economies where the cost of living is lower. And so, um, you know, th then it can work. But again, you know, then you have to find a way to differentiate yourself in basic, basically what amounts to a picture, a star rating, about three sentences, and your rate. And so it's just, it's just really tough to, to make it that way. So, but I have actually hired developers off of Odesk, and uh, there are a few folks that uh, worked out real well and a few folks that haven't, and then, um, you know, I've hired people outside of Odesk uh, that are overseas, and I've been really happy with some and less happy with others, so we'll see how that works. Um, do you think a potential client will get scared if you lower down your initial hourly rate in order to win the job? I would worry. Um, it depends. If they know that you lowered the rate to get the job, um, I, I think some will and some won't, but um, it, it just depends if they see that as, okay, well, he's totally desperate. Can he really do this or she really do this? Um, so I don't know. Um, I've never actually done that. If they, if they won't pay my rate, then they wind up hiring somebody else. And uh, I think you're way better off sticking to your guns because what that tells them is, I am confident that I am worth what I'm asking you to pay. And if you want to go pay somebody else and take a risk on them, then go right ahead. And I've actually said that to clients, and uh, I've offended some, and I have won some by doing that. So... Um, do you or are you comfortable offering a flat rate for your services versus an hourly rate? Um, I am moving moving much more that direction. And the reason is is because um, I feel like then, and this is what I tell my clients as well, what happens is, is if you go with an hourly rate, then if you're just looking at monetary incentives, then the incentives for the, the client are to define scope as narrowly as possible and not necessarily get what they want. And the incentives for the contractor are to basically um, rack up as many hours as they can, you know, and, and still be able to justify the value. If you go with a flat rate, then what you can do is you can find out what it's worth to the client to get the job done, and then you can make sure that you are um, below that. And so essentially what, what that boils down to then is um, you find out, like I said, what, it's, what is it worth, you know, this, if you build this, it'll make us a million dollars. So if I come in and I say, okay, well, it'll cost you $30,000 to build it, then they're looking at it and they're saying, that's a 33, uh, or it's a 33 time return on investment. It's a no brainer for them, right? But I could realistically build it at an hourly rate for 10 hour, 10 hour or $10,000, you know? And uh, so it's a good deal for me too. But the thing is, is then I am totally free to throw in extras and make them deliriously happy with their investment and then they keep hiring me. Um, a lot of times what I do is I just estimate out. Um, so I'll, I, I do estimate it. I sit down and I say, okay, well, you know, this is about this complicated, so it, you know, 
uh, it, it converts to about this many hours or this many days. And then, you know, I just make sure that, you know, the number of days or hours I think it's going to take uh, line up with whatever the bid is. But, you know, as long as it, as long as it looks about right, as long as it squares up nicely, um, and I haven't been burned by this yet, um, then I, I can take the job and I'm perfectly happy to get it done. Um, so any ideas or recommendations, tools or techniques to estimate the complexity? That really comes down to experience, and even then it's hard. So um, estimates are just hard. Uh, ultimately, for me, it's just a thumbnail sketch tool that gives me some idea of what it's going to take because there is just, the, there's no way to know. Um, I need this feature built. Well, I've never built it before. It looks kind of like this other feature, so I think it's going to take about the same amount of time. Or it looks like this other feature with these couple of things, and so I think it's going to take about this amount of time, and I'm going to add a few hours, days, whatever, uh, for the uncertainty that I have. But the, you know, there's just no way to know. And so I feel like as long as I'm happy with the value or the dollars that I'm getting for the effort that I'm putting in, and they're happy with the effort they're getting for my dollars, then it's a win. And so it doesn't then come down to, am I making what I could have made if I charged per hour? doesn't matter. Am I paying the bills? Is, you know, are we both happy with the value? Good deal. And uh, that that's, you know, but it takes all the pressure off with the hours then too, right? Uh, because I don't have to, I don't have to put in 30 hours this week. And if I don't, oh crap, blah, 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 blah. How am I going to pay the bills? Blah, 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 right? It's, they paid me to get this work done. They wanted it done around this time, and I told them that I could. So, you know, yeah, maybe I'm going to be working some extra hours the couple of weeks before that if I, if you know, if I blow some time off or if it really is more work than I thought. But even then, I mean, I'm still pretty happy uh, just doing what I need to do. Uh, do you build for milestones or just the whole project up front? Um, it depends. Uh, some companies that I've worked with in under this model are they're they're happy to just pay the whole thing up front, and that's usually the best way to go for both of you, because then you can just heads down deliver and you don't have to worry about um, whatever. However, if it's a huge, huge, huge project, then I'll break it down into stages and I'll just get paid for each stage up front, and that's what I'm doing with the client that I'm working for right now. Um, except they didn't pay me up front. I am actually they weren't completely comfortable with that. And so I just said, hey, you know what? Just pay this portion of it every week. And so I, I get paid every week by them. And uh, I better have it done by the time I said I'd have it done. But uh, I think we're pretty much on track to deliver that. So I'm not too worried about it at this point. Um, the other thing I've done is I've also offered you pay half now and half in 30 days. You know, and that way it's, you know, okay, in 30 days they're not deliriously happy with the work I'm doing so you know then then they say okay we're going to terminate the contract and then I just pay them back the rest so um, there are a lot of ways to do it but yeah I mean um, as long as you're comfortable with the arrangement and um, I, I like getting the money up front for each week of work or each you know milestone uh, then you know then you just work to make them happy instead of working to meet so many hours so and I do try and meet so many hours every week and make sure that I'm getting the stuff done. But when I'm done, I'm done, you know, and I still get paid. So if I can, if I can find a library or some other method uh, that shortcuts some of the work, then good for me. You know, I just made more money. And uh, if, if I have to build it from scratch and I thought it would take a whole lot less time, then, you know, maybe something else will make that up or maybe I'll just have to eat it this time. But... Usually what I find is that uh, my estimate my estimates are usually pretty accurate uh, over a project, even if um, I was wrong about one thing and right and wrong about another thing the other way. Uh, so for the most part, I haven't really worried about um, getting paid that way or you know getting really messed up for my time versus what I got paid. And I've actually subcontracted some of that work. Um, I subcontracted some of that work hourly, and so I'm paying my subcontractors per hour, 
But the thing is, is that again, they're getting enough work done to where I'm comfortable with the the pace and the rate and what I'm going to have to pay and how much work I'm going to have to do in order to make it all come together. So. I think we're about out of time. Um, any other questions that I can answer really fast before we wrap up? All right. Well, thanks for coming to JS Remote Conf Day 5. Um, looking, forward to, uh, looking forward to tomorrow. And uh, I should have these videos up uh, within the next few hours. Um, and if you have any questions or problems, just uh, shoot me an email, let me know, and we'll get you taken care of.